Welcome to Style with Substance, a podcast by The Vendeur. I'm your host, Lucy Kebble. plus a few bonus episodes, we'll be talking about the myths and greenwashing that surround sustainable fashion. Join us for discussion with industry insiders, tips and generally geeking out on the glory that is ethical fashion. Welcome back to episode 14. I hope you enjoyed last week's chat with Natasha at Kojo Market. We discussed the valuable role that can be played in lifting up African artisans and makers in order for them to grow their businesses. This week's episode is in a similar vein, but we're a bit closer to home. In 2019, the UK fashion industry was estimated to be worth £118 billion. However, it takes a major fashion CEO just four days to earn what a female garment worker in Bangladesh will earn in her entire lifetime. So it's clear that a huge gap in wealth exists in the industry. But why is this? Women, specifically women of colour, make up 80% of the garment maker workforce. So it's safe to say that sexism and racism both play key roles in reducing the value of the work that these people do. Even though the work is highly skilled and technical, I certainly couldn't sew a hem to save my life, and yet so many of us look down our noses at people who make our clothes. This week I'm speaking to Sophie Slater, the co-founder of Birdson London. The brand is widely recognised as being a pioneer in the social impact and sustainability space, 90% of women's organisations in London have had funding cuts since 2010. Birdsong works specifically with these charities, supporting the incredible makers and skilled artisans that exist in the UK. The brand aims to create a blueprint for a more localised, sustainable and fair fashion industry. It's the very definition of slow fashion. The charities and organisations that Birdsong work with have said that through their partnerships, they feel less vulnerable to funding cuts. And we've spoken many times about the dangers of the Made in UK tag on your clothes somehow negating the need for any workplace responsibility on the part of brands. As we found out recently, factories in England are just as guilty of labour rights violations as those in the Global South. Lockdown left many garment workers, especially migrant workers in the UK, open to exploitation. Sophie is incredibly knowledgeable about supply chains in general, but knows her own like the back of her hand. Birdsong is more a community than it is a business. She is truly inspiring and Birdsong is proof that the old misogynistic and colonialist ways of doing business are outdated and not fit for purpose. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording and editing it. Please show your support for the podcast by subscribing and leaving us a review. It helps other people to find us. Here is my chat with Sophie. Hi Sophie, thank you for joining me today. Hiya, thanks so much for having me. So can you kick off by just telling us a little bit about you and a little bit about Birdsong London? Yeah, of course. So my name is Sophie Slater. I'm 29. I currently live in South East London. And in 2014, at the tender age of 23, I helped co-found Birdsong, which is a sustainable, ethical, fashion, social enterprise that work with local community groups and women's organisations. Amazing. Can you can you define a social enterprise for us? Yeah, of course. It's a business where the main goal is kind of people and purpose above profit. 
and you know we are technically for profit but we reinvest those back in the company and back into the the mission that we kind of are trying to solve so it's kind of yeah just a way of doing business with people in mind I guess and a little bit more hopefully uh able to stand on its own two legs than traditional charity models which we've seen um you know can can go bust quite quickly if, if the government withdraws funding for example yeah that's interesting actually I hadn't thought about it like that before so can you go back to the beginning go back to the tender age of 23 and tell us how and and why you decided to co-found a, a fashion brand essentially I was always into clothes and into fashion I loved working with clothes I'd worked as a retail shop assistant for a brand called American Apparel when I was a teenager and I was really interested in their ethos of manufacturing vertically in LA, paying living wages, manufacturing ethically. But uh, if you know American Apparel, they weren't particularly known for their very empowering ad campaigns. Like a lot of their advertising uh, was banned by Advertising um, Standards Authority for being really sexist. And yeah, the teenager kind of like worked there and occasionally uh had a little bit of kind of interaction with the modeling industry as well and love clothes and love fashion but couldn't really reconcile a lot of what I saw with my quite like strong beliefs around ethics and sustainability and feminism as well so I kind of had a bit of a career change after university and was working in the women's sector um I did a postgrad course with another social enterprise called Year Here and they were kind of offering this free, quite radical postgrad in that you learn how to create your own social business. And I'd never really heard about social business before, but I'd worked for charities and knew how vulnerable they were to funding cuts. And I was working in the women's sector at the time. So they kind of gave us the skills and connections to be able to kind of prototype well, at the time, it was just a project. It was a six-week project, and I never thought that I would start a business. But we started working with these women's organisations in London who, you know, had access to these really talented women who could sew, could knit, could hand-paint, could embroider, but were completely alienated from the wider fashion industry and the market as well, really. So we had this idea of creating... To begin with, we were more of like a marketplace and we worked as like an intermediary to get the products that these women were working on, these charities were working on, to consumers. And then eventually um, I hired my co-founder slash designer, like Susanna Wen, who's our creative director now. And she brought everything into one kind of brand. So now we source all the products, like all the, sorry, um, we source all the materials, all the sustainable fabrics for the women we work with to work with. And Susanna designs everything and works with them really hands-on to create a really cohesive collection across all the groups that we work with. So it's evolved in that way, but our kind of core mission is still the same, which is that we want to create a blueprint for a more localised, fair, sustainable fashion industry. And that means paying London living wages, and not rushing anything, not squeezing our supply chain, working with people and being on the same page really about what we want to achieve. That sounds amazing. You just you you mentioned there a London living wage. Could you could you give us a bit more detail about the London living wage? 
because I think that sometimes there's a bit of confusion between the difference between the minimum wage and a, and a living wage of a country. Yeah, of course. It's actually really shocking to me that the minimum wage was actually only introduced in the UK like relatively recently. I think it was maybe like 20 years ago or less. I think I remember that being announced and thinking, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) You look back at it now and it's like nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The minimum wage, you know, which is meant to be, I don't know what it was initially based on, but then there's also this national living wage that was kind of rolled out as part of current government policy a couple of years ago. And then there's the actual living wage, which is calculated by the Living Wage Foundation. And if you go on their website, they calculate there's a kind of national living wage and a London living wage. I'm sure that they vary region to region as well. So, you know, where I'm from in the northeast, where I grew up, I'm sure you can, you know, get a much better quality of life on the £10.75 that's the London living wage. But yeah, it's basically calculated so that as someone on a full time salary should be able to meet all the costs uh, associated with living in London. Currently, you know, according to uh, like the London Trust, there was a report out this year that said that 40% of Londoners aren't meeting um, an acceptable standard of living. So as much as 40% of adults in London are actually living in poverty or, you know, just up against the poverty line, which is quite shocking when you think about it. But a living wage should ensure that you don't have to spend, you know, half of your earnings on rent, that you can survive comfortably and kind of have a little bit of manoeuvre for emergencies or other things like my lockdowns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we actually pay £15 an hour, but a chunk of that will go to the women's organisation. This is for our seamstresses uh, who support the women that we work with and that kind of goes towards their overheads and then the women get the living wage per hour out of that. And we'd love to pay more in future, but we need sort of economies of scale to, to you know, secure that. So that's our kind of dream going forwards as well. Okay. So you work mainly with female garment workers and, and collectives in London. Why do you think there is such a disparity in the way that female garment workers are treated, especially uh, those that are migrant workers to the UK? Mm, do you mean a disparity in the way that garment workers are treated to other workers? Or Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting, I think, because historically, like 20, 25 years ago, 90% of uh, the UK's clothing wasn't imported. It was, it was made here in the UK. And I think, you know, garment like, you know, or textiles or fashion um, making has always been a traditionally feminine job. And that's why it's chronically undervalued. Like if we look at coding in the early and mid 20th century, that was a typically feminine job too. And as a result, it was really underpaid and under kind of valued. And then there was actually, I think it was like a toy company decided to capitalize on tech by marketing kind of computers to boys Christmas one year. And IT gradually became like in tech, um became more of like the domain of like like men and like male workers that's interesting I didn't know that and now it's really well paid (laughs) which is really interesting because if you look at um I don't know if you've seen like a film called Hidden Figures but all the like NASA coders were like women um and a lot of women of color as well and like working class women I think ah yes there was the film yes I know the one you mean there's obviously a lot of really educated people doing the coding as well and like um 
more kind of middle class workers yeah I think it's just because it's really undervalued like I've I've seen this amazing uh talk by a professor I think she's called Professor Rose I have to double check but she you know gives these whole lectures about how knitting and fabrication are essentially code and it's the same as like structural engineering but just on like a micro level and it's not you know when you think about how fabrics work and how garments work with the body and the structure of them it is like really complicated and it's a science and it is engineering but I think the way that we see clothes in the fashion industry is seen as quite frivolous um it's potentially not as well respected as design for example and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that it's kind of traditionally queer people and women who are involved in it and especially when it comes to like garment workers I think because along with the outsourcing of garment workers um to you know like the global south it's just another form of colonialism really we've we've kind of degraded these industries so much as a result of white supremacy that we now um treat them like they're not these incredibly valued talented roles um because we've kind of outsourced it all to Bangladesh uh, where we were former colonizers and you know as a result of that we've kind of forgotten about the fact that this is a really skilled you know quite labor-intensive industry yeah I think it's just a result of sexism and racism really that we we don't treat garment workers especially well I think when you look at workers who are kind of most exploited in this country that unfortunately modern slavery happens in the UK still and it's mostly kind of farm workers laborers garment workers and cleaners as well I think when you look at the the way that the hostile environment has informed that as well and cleaners and garment workers um having their wages docked and being threatened with deportation even if they're you know here perfectly legally because there's so much fear instilled in you know people who come here for a better life and migrants through the kind of hostile environment that people are very on edge and workers can exploit that I think and miseducate in order to exploit people more so you know we did a talk with the Latin American Women's Rights Service a couple of years ago and they were saying that employers were stealing the passports of cleaners that they were employing and like telling them that they'd breached aspects of their visa and withholding their pay when that was not true at all but they're kind of exploiting the language gap and that um and their knowledge of our judicial system and and how it works here god that's really really makes me feel a little bit sick that people get manipulated like that yeah and you know we know that that's happening to migrant workers in Leicester as well because when you look at, you know, the the Financial Times report that came out in, I think it was late 2018 now, it was it was quite a long time ago, like the Fixing Fast Fashion report, which was part of a government select committee, it was 12 recommendations to make the fashion industry fairer and more sustainable, presented to government a couple of years ago, and it only really got attention. They ignored all 12 aspects of it. And then obviously, we heard about the outbreak in Leicester and people being exploited um, on lockdown but the government have known about this for a long time and I think they turn a blind eye because um, British e-commerce is such a huge part of the economy I mean it depends which way you look at the economy I would look at the economy as in employing people fairly um, but yeah I think you know they've known for a long time that this is going on and that 
people in Leicester are paid £3.50, £4, £5 an hour. You know, in 2001, Topshop were exposed for having a sweatshop in Whitechapel that had like asbestos and, and, you know, the doors were locked and things. So I think we think that sweatshops are something really far away as well, but they also happen here. Yeah, yeah. It's really depressing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I always like... No, no. It was, that was something that I wanted to ask you about because I, I'm genuinely really interested in finding out more about the UK garment industry because I think that we a lot of people probably have this assumption that we think that anything that's made in the UK was made fairly and in line with health and safety regulation and everyone was paid well and treated well Mm. and it it simply isn't like that and and as you were saying in Leicester was it was it boohoo I think were discovered very recently for yeah. for utilizing these factories of course they were able to wash their hands of the whole situation and say that they had no idea yeah. but this is the danger is that brands are so far removed from their supply chains mm-hmm. that you know even though a lot of them have um, independent auditors that go in to look at the factories and double check that they do align with all of the moral codes and the modern slavery acts that everyone has to abide by they actually have no idea what's going on but I think they also don't care it's only when they get found out that they say oh we're sorry but actually we didn't know yeah I mean the thing with Boohoo is I think their owner was actually shown to have shares in that in that factory um, I had that too. Yeah, it's what Leicester and Manchester are very close. Like if that was if you know that was a factory we were supplying from, you know we'd be there every week. We'd we'd know everyone's name. We'd know how their kids are getting on. Uh, if they've got enough to live off, do you know what I mean? So like I think that's the difference. I think you need to treat, especially if you're producing like so locally, which I think is a great idea because you know. As I said, colonialism, like, you know, just just outsourcing your labour to another country so you don't have to pay as much and is, yeah, I think is gross. I think if you're going into another country, even in saying, well, we'll pay fairly, there's something a little bit about that that can also be quite like white saviory as well. So I think there's loads of like complex economic and like racialized factors into you know when you're when you're starting an ethical brand there's a lot of factors to acknowledge which yeah are quite complex but I think at the end of the day we can simplify it by just saying you know treat garment workers as well as you want to treat the rest of your workforce they are the integral part of your clothing business they are the skilled ones like you can't I think was it Boohoo? I've not seen the show, but they had you know the Channel Four show where they're all kind of in the office. Oh, misguided. That's the one. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, don't don't get me started on that. That was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I, I watched the In the Style one. I don't think I can put myself through the misguided one. But yeah, you know, saying like, oh, we're all empowered here, like hashtag girl power, and then down the road in Leicester, you're putting people on poverty pay. It's just. It's racist. That's all it is. It's classist and it's racist. So um, I think that's why they don't care. You know, I think there's a weird cognitive dissonance that makes people think they can treat working class migrant people of colour worse than they treat their employees otherwise, which is really interesting. But I think that's what it boils down to, really. I think you're right, because as you were saying, these people are an incredibly skilled workforce. They can do 
a garment worker could do a lot more than I can do. I can barely sew on a button. I'm I'm quite ashamed to say. Exactly, you know, but it just I think in that in that respect, then you are correct in that it is a racist attitude that we have that we look down our noses at these people, even though they have a skill that a lot of us don't have. I was I was reading in Lucy Siegel's book I'll link to it in the show notes because it's a brilliant book. There was a professor at a university who had his students sit down and create a factory line. And he said, uh, garment workers in Bangladesh would create X number of t-shirts in a day. So between you, this is how many t-shirts you need to create. And I mean, it's not shocking to say that they woefully underperformed. They struggled to finish, I think, even 10% of what workers are expected to to create and sometimes they're punished for not mm-hmm. creating for not meeting those quotas so it's it is quite a strange way of thinking when we like you say that they're, they're so far away it can't it can't be a real thing it can't be affecting real people but it, it absolutely is yeah I think especially with e-commerce because we're so detached from you know we don't go into a shop and kind of feel the garment we don't talk to a shop assistant we just click and then it comes the next day yeah. in a lot of instances and you know it's so divorced from the origins of it I think you know as a legal requirement you've got to have the country it was made in as a bare minimum but um that doesn't really tell us a lot whereas you know with our clothing we've got a tag signed with a picture of the woman who sewed it we've got you know a long um, if it's a t-shirt that we've bought from elsewhere there's quite a lot of big tag with all the information about that factory on there's a sticker to tell you that it was packed in north london by one of three trainees at the you know adult disability charity that we work with in north london so there's a quite a lot of detail in there because we don't want to i mean maybe it's less important now but i think when we first started out we wanted to really hammer home that human connection and be like someone made this for you like this was a person who made this like isn't that incredible (laughs) I I disagree I think that I think that transparency is becoming more and more important now Mm -hmm. especially when brands like H&M can boast that they are the most transparent brand in the world (laughs) um that um for reference sorry is is uh, goes back to a fashion revolution report i think it was last year or was it this year yeah. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes again but they were able to say that they were very transparent which is of course brilliant but the transparency needs to also lead to accountability and if they're able to say we make in these factories in bangladesh but the factories are using union busting yeah exactly then there's no point in your transparency whereas the transparency that birdsong adopts is 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 full of accountability you know i could go and i could google the cooperative where you know your pieces are made and that's so important because you're empowering consumers with information mm, i hope so and as well just as a caveat that transparency um index i think it was like if you look at the small print it's like the most transparent brand who earns above x amount in revenue which is a humongous oh well what's the point of that then because <laughs> <laughs> obviously they're not the most transparent brand in the world that's why i take down that instagram post because like 
I know. That was very naughty of them. I was. Um... They love to market themselves as sustainable, which is yes. Um, but yeah, I think there's always more that we can do. Like I don't know, I don't want to make excuses, but we're still, you know, a tiny team, and I think we really want to go into stuff like QR code technology, so we can show you exactly, you know, the origins of who, who's made everything. And you know, I don't want to say we're perfect because you know we we source a lot of different fabrics we get some that's reclaimed so we don't know where that's been made but we're just picking up at you know the end cycle of its life and reusing it and we use tent cell we know the factory that that's from and we they've got really great credentials but we've not been able to afford to fly out to china to visit the factory floor where that fabric is manufactured so you know we can't we've read you know that it's a brilliant fantastic uh, facility and everyone's paid well but it's just certain things that you can't guarantee because there's no what we really think is missing in in you know the new fashion economy and I think we're going to see a lot of brands return to UK manufacturing um and hopefully a lot of accountability and transparency will come with that because I think consumers are getting much more demanding and a lot more aware which is fantastic but um what we really need is you know the rebirth of the of the fiber manufacturing industry in the UK and I think We've got such a huge amount of textiles waste that, you know, if anyone works in a local council with textiles waste or if there's any millionaires uh, listening to this, they want to set up a textile waste. We have waste, lots of millionaires uh, that listen to this podcast, so don't worry. <laughs> Number two, please can you fund a factory that will recycle textiles waste because we need to start making our own fibres out of waste. Hmm. And um, otherwise, we're just going to have to keep buying fabric from all corners of the earth to to make sustainable clothes from. So, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we we talked about recycling in the very first episode of this podcast, and I learned that uh, the clothes that are collected in recycling bins in in shops on the high street and recycling bins by charities, etc., a lot of it is just sorted and sent to places like Africa to be resold as um, as clothing over there. Yeah, they have a thriving right. secondhand industry. But I had always assumed that clothes were recycled into other clothes. And that's simply not the case. So you're absolutely 100% on the nail there. That yeah. that definitely needs to happen. I was just going to say, and then they flood uh, local economies and devalue the production of their own clothing. So you've got countries like Ghana, which have just outlawed um, secondhand clothing imports because they don't want our crop anymore so yeah uh, yeah and quite rightly so I don't I don't think that it should be happening so that's that's a step in the right direction I hope so I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot slightly and just come back more to what birdsong do you work with women's communities a lot in London you've already mentioned so what are the mm. what are the benefits of working with a uh, with a women's community in London and have you seen progression over the last few well over the years that you've had birdsong have you have you sort of seen a growth in the communities and have you seen pos- positive aspects i guess such as you know women feeling empowered and you know the money that they're earning going towards helping them in some way i don't know if they want to start their own business or Mm, you know buy things for their kids yeah definitely I think the main charity we work with for our cut and sew is based in Limehouse and they've been going for 30 years actually I'll tell you a story about our first ever seamstress in group that we kind of formed birdsong around and it's kind of 
probably the opposite of what you're asking but um, no go for it <laughs> I'm going to try and end on a positive note basically we work with this fantastic women's charity that was kind of led and started by um, mostly like Bengali women like 30 35 years ago now and they were based on Brick Lane and they'd made they kind of had the whole building they had a workshop with room for 60 women to be working they had a crash they had IT lessons it was just an amazing community charity and they sold their clothes in Spitalfields Market and you know we'd been working with them for maybe like six months or a year and they had all their council funding cut their landlord died the kids inherited the building they tripled the rent overnight and evicted everyone and gave them 10 days to move out Oh my god! So then they had this tiny workshop that only three women could work from, and at the same time, sorry, did you say this was a happy story? <laughs> <laughs> so this this is the challenges that all our women's organisations are up against. Like we started because ninety percent of women's organisations in London have had horrendous funding cuts since two thousand and ten. So is it can be quite disheartening because the women's sector has just been absolutely slashed, and I think rather than you know like oh yeah they just opened an amazing new suite there's like free yoga classes now there's like it's really gradual but it is a lot of like well the charities we're working with now are still going and that sounds really unimpressive but you know we're accounting for sometimes like 80 percent of the revenue of these uh groups sometimes which you know they were existing before we came along so that's really nice to know that we have, you know, boosted that revenue and hopefully, you know, all of our charities, we do an impact survey, say that they're less, feel less vulnerable to funding cuts. They feel like they can support more women. Uh, they're more sustainable. Yeah, exactly. And I think when we started working with our seamstresses at this community arts charity, there was maybe two people on the production line. And I think that's expanded up to six now. Obviously, wow, really that's great. With COVID, because that's kind of set us back a little bit I think um you know we were we were doing so well we had our best ever month in March and then you know as another thing because we are so concerned with the welfare of our gun workers and because the charities we work with are only only care about the welfare um of the women that we work with we just had we couldn't manufacture for three months we just had to shut everything down because the women we work with were too kind of at risk from the virus so yeah that's been quite tricky but you know we're it's really heartwarming like we know our seamstresses quite well and yeah they'll be like I think one of the main things that was really nice to hear was one of our screen printers hadn't seen her family in Bangladesh for like four years at one point and she bought tickets to like go on holiday and see them for like three weeks and they hadn't with her kids which was really lovely and that you know, and like our embroider Ramona was stuck in Egypt in lockdown and we managed to like send her money for like a ticket home, which is really great. So those little stories, I guess, because they're so personal, <laughs> things like that mm. make you feel really good about the kind of financial impact we're having. But it's all quite small. No one's buying like a jumbo jet or their first house yet. <laughs> well, who needs a jumbo jet? <laughs> um I mean, well, it sounds like you're more of a family, really, than a than a than a company. I mean, obviously, as you, as you acknowledged at the beginning of the program, you do need to make some money in order for everyone to benefit from it. Otherwise, there's no point. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I think, yeah, we just we we work with a lot of our friends and like 
kind of people we admire, whether that's photographers or models. And we just try and treat people the same, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Lucy's our production manager. She's, I've unfortunately not seen any of our makers for six months now because of quarantine and I was kind of in another part of the UK. But Suze has a really fantastic relationship with all of our makers. And yeah, I miss them a lot. It's, um, yeah, we just know everyone. We've been to their family weddings. Like, we've been to their family. Oh, wow. like, we, we know people pretty well. So it's it's a really nice way of doing things. Yeah, and, and a really lovely way to end the episode as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I've definitely learned a lot and I hope that our listeners have as well. Thank you so much for having me and I hope it's not been too depressing. Um... <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it's been great. I think companies like yourself are proof that things things are getting better. I hope so. I always stand by the quote, optimism of will, pessimism of mind. So know that things are bad, uh-huh. hope that they can be better. Yeah, no, that's a great one. I'll have to remember that. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you. Thanks so much. I don't know about you, but I felt a bit tingly listening to that. Sophie's experience is evidence that companies who operate with compassion, fairness and sustainability at their core are really changing the world for the better. Please take a look at their website and consider buying your Christmas presents from Birdsong. They have a helpful gift guide on their website in case you're stuck for ideas. The clothes are totally gorgeous and your money is going to good places. Join us next week for another exciting discussion about ethical and sustainable fashion. See you then.